All right, so this morning we get to talk about freedom. Freedom's kind of exciting. We're all Americans. We like freedom, right? It's kind of what our nation is built on, is this concept of freedom. Freedom is something we long for. It's something we desire. The majority of America's defining moments are founded in the pursuit of freedom. We sing songs about it. Our national anthem is built around it. Principle of freedom. We start movements. Laws are passed to preserve it. And wars are fought on its behalf. Freedom. We love freedom. We love freedom so much, actually, uh, 77% of us in a 2013 Gallup poll named individual freedom as the greatest virtue that sets America above every other industrialized nation. I don't know who they polled. I wasn't part of the poll. Uh, if you were, I'd love to get your idea of what you thought of individual freedom was. But 77% of us in this room valued individual freedom above everything else in America. It's ironic, though, that with 77% of us liking individual freedom, none of us likes the system on which it is based. We like the results, but not the government that provides it. Gallup noted this, and they said, even though two-thirds or three-quarters of Americans rated freedom in the U.S. as above par, nevertheless, more Americans applaud individual freedoms on which the system is based than the system of government itself. And in D.C., you know this. Everybody is unhappy with the system. Everybody's unhappy with how we get it. But for some reason, we have this deep-found love for freedom. That's what we get to talk about this morning. What Gallup did not do was identify and define what individual freedom was. So everybody, 77% of us in this room, love individual freedom, but we all have different concepts of it. Men, you know this. If you're married, you often have a different concept of freedom than your wife does. My wife and I will be married seven years in October, and no, I didn't get married when I was 12. <laughs> I got married at 24. You guys can do the math. Um, we got married, and I quickly found out that my wife has a different concept of freedom than I do. Men, I have a weekend shirt. It's a beautiful T-shirt. I've had it for 10 years. It's just completely plain. It's probably $6 at Walmart. It's been great. It fits me like a glove. I can do anything in it. I can wake up in the morning, read my newspaper, sit on the couch. I can get up, mow the lawn. I can work on my car. I can go back to the couch. I can go get lunch, go back to the couch. I can do some more errands around the house. I can take a walk, and I can go out to dinner without ever having to change that shirt. <laughs> it is an amazing shirt. Until one day, we were taking a walk with our dog, and my wife turns and looks at me and says, you can no longer wear that shirt. Now, see, there, there may be a couple small holes in it. There's some paint on it. There might be some oil stains on it. But it was the perfect shirt. I felt free in this shirt. Many accomplishments were made in this shirt. And I loved it. Until one day, my wife told me, you can't wear it. That is not a freedom you should express. Because when you wear it, you look homeless. And I'm not going to be seen with somebody that's homeless. And so we have these different concepts of freedom. Philosophers themselves cannot identify what freedom truly is. They've come to two different terms, negative and positive freedom. Negative freedom is what we all think about when we think of freedom for the most part. This is that state I was in, living and wearing this shirt, enjoying this shirt, before she ever placed any restrictions on me, right? Negative freedom is no rules. We're autonomous. We can do what we want. 
We're not affected by anybody, but we can make up our own mind. There's no laws, there's no societal norms that we go against. We're free. The other concept is positive freedom. This is the state that I would choose to stand in if I wore that T-shirt after she placed that restriction on me, right? This is that, okay, there's consequences. I understand there's consequences. I'm willing to take the full brunt of those consequences because this shirt is just so amazing. This is the William Wallace-type freedom in Braveheart when he is fighting with everything he can for this concept of freedom, and even while he's being tortured on his deathbed, he has this great sense of self-determination, an urge of freedom welling up within him, that even though he is bound, he is still free. Negative and positive freedom. While both of these are good, philosophers cannot determine which one's better than the other, which one is more true than the other, and more importantly, if we can have them. See, philosophers for thousands of years said we cannot be truly free. This may be depressing this morning for a series on freedom, but everybody believes that we cannot be truly free. George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, sorry if I butchered any Dutch or German in that, um, great German philosopher, late 1700s, early 1800s, said this about freedom. said, no idea is so generally recognized as indefinite ambiguous, or open to the greatest misconceptions as the idea of freedom. So how do we get it? What does it look like? Stoics, these philosophers from about 300 BC to 200 AD, this 500, 600 year period around the time of Christ, but not necessarily Christians, came to this conclusion that, okay, so we cannot be truly free, right? We're finite beings. We have a beginning, we have an end. Your birth was not a decision of your own. You were a passive agent in the process, right? So we didn't have a free will in that. Our end will more than likely be a determination of laws of physics or nature, somebody else enacting upon us. And much of what's in between, we do not have full control over. So if that's the case, what does freedom look like? If we are finite beings, freedom has to come from somewhere. And these Stoics said, God... This concept of God, not necessarily the Christian God, but this concept of God must be the only one that can be truly free. God in his own essence is this idea of infinite. He has no beginning. He has no end. None of us in this room can twist his arm behind his back and get him to do what we want him to do. That was, that's what makes him God, right? It's all-powerful. He's above us. He's outside of our limitations. So we have this challenge of God's infinite, wonderful, all-powerful, unswayed by what's going on around him, and we're finite, down here, limited human beings, how does that exchange take place? How do we get it from up here to down here? And that's what we're going to talk about for six weeks. What does this relationship look like? How does it happen? God is infinite and has true freedom, understands it, experiences it, and lives in true freedom. How do we get to taste it? Why don't you pray with me? Father, we long for freedom. We long to be at peace. We long to know you, to come into contact and taste, Lord God, this sense of freedom, this sense of hope. And that's what we long for this morning, that we would get a glimpse into you, into what this freedom is, and how we can experience it. In your name, amen.
The book of Galatians is where we're going to be sitting for the next six weeks, and I invite you to open up your Bibles to that text or your smartphone. If you have one, you can also pull it up there. Uh, It'll also be on our screen. But we're going to be reading the first ten verses of Galatians 1. And the book of Galatians is written to a new group of Christians, a new set of believers in what is now modern-day Turkey. And Paul is giving them a great warning about their faith. Galatians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God our Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me. To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly turning, deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let him be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you've accepted, let them be under God's curse. This is where we're going here this morning in verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. It's a strong statement. This morning we have a strong dichotomy between God and man between a true gospel and a fake gospel, a perverted gospel, a messed up gospel, one that sets people in confusion. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. It's how to free your faith from the fear of people. See, what Paul is addressing here is the fact that some from Jerusalem had come along and said, okay, Galatians, you've received Jesus. You've received grace. That's great. You need Jesus. Jesus is the way to God. That's wonderful. But the religious elite had come along and said, you also need to be Jews. You also need to act like Jews. You also need to eat like Jews. You need to be circumcised. You need to come to the temple and make sacrifices. And what they had done is set up man's program around, built upon the grace of Christ, and said, in essence, return to your religious life. See, the Galatians were known to be superstitious and highly religious. They did all the right things. They had gold gods. They had wood, clay idols, these gods that they would worship and make sacrifices to in the hope that they would garner favor from him. They were always working to get the favor of God. And what these from Jerusalem had come along says, okay, that's great, you have a relationship with God, but now you need to work for his favor. And Paul is reminding them that that is a perverted gospel. See, the first thing that we have to look at this morning that I believe comes out of Galatians is that religion promises freedom. Religion promises freedom in the sense of a future reward. It's something that is held out in front of us that we, in theory, can work towards and earn. I have a clip here from Horrible Bosses. I'm not recommending the movie. We watched it. It's just a reality. Um, But it's got a nice little clip that's got in here that kind of works towards what I'm going for with this future promise of reward. Watch it with me. Mr. Harkin, can I speak to you? Yeah, sure, what is it? You know, for months you've been hinting that I was in line for that promotion. And look how hard you've been working. What, you're just lying to me? Lying? No, Nick, motivating. I mean, look, we're all part of the same team here. 
Plus, you know, I'm the one who's going to be doing all the extra work. You know that last month you made me work so late, I missed saying goodbye to my gam-gam? I'm sorry, what? My grandmother. I told you that I needed to see her because she was very, very sick. You said if I left early, I'd get fired. And she died before I made it to the hospital. I'm sorry. Thank you. I had no idea that you called your grandmother Sorry. Sorry you didn't get to say bye-bye to Cam Cam. Really, really But I needed you to stay here and work late because you were an invaluable member of this operation and I need you in the position that you're currently in. I don't know if any of you guys have been in that position. It's not a fun position to be in. But this idea that a reward is held out in front of us. Now you may be here this morning and I tend to view God in this way in a sense of the Kevin Spacey character that I'm working. I'm giving every Sunday. I'm giving, growing up, we did Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday evening, and then small group, you know. I'm giving all my time to God in the hope that one day I will get that promotion, that I will get that reward, right? That's what we're hoping for, is one day we will get a future reward. And I'm not saying that that's not the case, but there's something I want to play on a little bit deeper. Because when we view God this way, what happens in the work relationship? If we're working and we're struggling like this guy, if you've seen the movie, you know the result for the boss, right? They go about and they try killing him. And if we have this relationship with God, we become embittered when we work. We put in our time praying, we serve, we give, we do all these things, but what happens when we don't feel like we get the answered prayer that we want? Or we see the pain and evil around us. We become embittered. We get ready to put in our notice, right? We can get tired of it. We can move on. Or look at it from the other direction. If we are doing everything that we feel we can do, if we're working towards this freedom, if we're working towards this reward, maybe we're not doing enough. What happens? The metrics, the objectives, if we aren't meeting those, what happens? In a healthy work environment, you're let go, right? Not all work environments are healthy. But you either get demoted, you get a pay decrease. There's some kind of consequence. And, and maybe we're sitting and saying, okay, well, I haven't been getting what I've been looking for. Maybe God is one step away from letting me go. Maybe he's saying, I've had enough with him. Let's cut him off. And that's one of the risks that we have in this mentality. The challenge is, or the reality is rather, that God had never set it up to be a list of metrics, objectives, and rules. You may think of that as Christianity is just that, rules, metrics, and objectives. But from the beginning, it was never created that way. The Garden of Eden, this place where creation took place, was filled with immense freedom, was filled with relationship. If you look and you read Galatians, Galatians, let's go with Genesis. If you look at Genesis 1 through 3, it talks about that deep sense of relationship and love between the Creator and His creation, between God and humanity, and the freedom that existed in that realm, we chose to give that up. But God, time and time again, through Hosea, through the prophets, through Malachi, says that there is something greater than the, ri- the rules, the restrictions, the metrics. Hosea 6.6 6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. 
If you're thinking God wants nothing but rules and regulations, I have another word for you that God is first and foremost looking for that relationship. The challenge is that man comes along, and this is what those from Jerusalem, the religious elite had done, is come along and say, no, the relationship isn't the primary. You have to build up things in order to get to the relationship, right? We have to be good enough to be able to earn God's attention, and that's where the relationship comes in. And Paul is saying something quite different. Francis Chan, in his book uh, Crazy Love, says this, and it's been a quote that's been kind of rattling me up for the past couple weeks because it kind of gets to the essence of everything that I think oftentimes Christianity is about. It says, If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you've ever had on earth, all the food you've ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you've ever seen, sounds pretty good, right? All the physical pleasure you've ever tasted, no human conflict or national tragedies, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? If Christ weren't part of it, what are we working to this morning? What are we fighting for? Religion holds out this future promise of freedom, this reward. And oftentimes we are looking to a future reward rather than the reality that is available to us right now. See, where a religion promises freedom, relationship provides freedom. Relationship provides freedom. And I chose the word provides because it's something that happens here and now. It is a transformation that takes place that radically alters who we are, our outlook, and our disposition in life. Once you have a small taste of freedom, you can't but help to long and desire and strive for more of it because it is so good that it transforms who you are. And instead of God dangling out a reward, saying if you pray hard enough, if you come to church more often, if you give, if you sacrifice, if you give to the needy, give to the church, then you'll get it. Instead of saying that, God says, in a relationship with me, when you get it, when you find love, when you respond to my love, to my grace, those things become enjoyable because they become part of who you are. They don't become burdensome. They aren't laborsome but they are a transformation of your desires and your heart that naturally leads towards life. If you think about this in your relationships, I can do everything for my wife, but if I have no love, she doesn't want it, right? I can wash dishes, I can rub her back. I can, if it's all for a reward, I put myself at risk. I put that relationship at risk because it's empty. But once there is a love driving that, there's something that automatically comes to life in that relationship. And that's what the power of this grace is. Just so you know, I'm not making this up. I'll refer again to Galatians 1, 3 through 5. It says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You have to go no further then the first word of that sentence, grace. Grace to you from God our Father. The whole concept of grace is the reality that it is something that comes from God, right? That's what the text says. So if we have an infinite God, all-powerful, full of freedom, up here, but we're down here, right? We're messed up. We're finite. We're limited by nature. We're limited by physics. We cannot go up into heaven. Indeed, the psalmist says, who can ascend into heaven and bring God down? No one can, right? Like, we can't get up there. We try. We try to earn that place. But what God is saying, what Paul is saying here is that 
in order for that exchange of freedom to take place, we have to realize that it comes as grace from God. Since we can't go up, God naturally, willfully decides to come down to where we are. And that is what the person of Jesus is all about. This extension of grace. And grace isn't just for the sake of feeling good and feeling like we have a gift. It's for peace with God. Paul says, grace and peace to you from God our Father. See, there is something bigger than just setting things right. There is a relationship at stake. See, before Christ came, we were at odds against God, fighting to do our own thing, trying to be good enough, trying to make things right, but didn't have peace with God. And what grace allows us to do is to enter into a relationship with him that is life-changing, that brings about peace, peace within, peace with God and peace with others. That is the power of that relationship is that it utterly transforms our whole inward nature to peace. It revolves around the person of Jesus that brings us from a present evil age into a God-filled age. Verse 4, it says, he gave himself to rescue us from the present evil age. And this isn't just like, oh, well, there's a lot of stuff going on around the world. The world's chaotic. You know, there's evil all around. It's the, the harsh reality that we are intimately part of the fabric of this evil age. Matt Comar talked about it a couple weeks ago, talking it's not so much about the actions that God is concerned about, but the condition of our hearts, the condition of who we are. And that is the reality that God wants to take us from, to take us out of the citizenship of a present evil age, a messed up world, into an age that is filled with relationship with life, with hope, with him. It is a transformation of our allegiance, our loyalty, and that's why Hosea 6.6 6 says, I desire steadfast love. It's because it's that sense of commitment. Men, love may sound weird to talk about loving Jesus, right? It can be kind of odd. I didn't grow up with an overly affectionate father. I never heard him really say I love you or big hugs or anything like that. So this idea of loving another guy in this way is kind of odd, right? But it's not talking about floating through clouds, little cupids. It's not talking about frolicking through fields of flowers or the pitter-patter of your heart as you swing hands down the street. It's not talking about that. If you want to do that, you can. People kind of think you're weird, I'm sure. Um, But what it's talking about is this intimate commitment to God where you desire, you, you long to get to know him. It's a crude analogy, but if you liken it to a hobby or a sport, Right? We spend time on it. We spend money on it. We seek after it. We read about it. Surprisingly, we talk to other people about it. If you refuse to acknowledge a sports team to somebody else, you're usually a fair-weather fan. You're not that committed, right? And that's the way God is. When he becomes intricately part of us, we begin to spend time on him. We begin to spend energy on him. We don't have a problem discussing him with others because his love and grace has so intimately and dramatically impacted our lives that it can't help but come out. We can't help but talk about it. And that's how we get free from the fear of people. Is by allowing the grace of God, the relationship, the free gift, to so impact and overwhelm our soul that we can't help but be transformed. We know this is true, and it's a powerful thing that God first demonstrates to us. Right? And this morning we get to take communion, and it'll be a a unique opportunity in the sense that we get to remember and acknowledge the fact 
that God has first taken that step and demonstrated that he is not afraid of people. He is not afraid to let people know that he loves us so much that he'll do anything. That's the gospel of grace. Is that even though a God, if you think about it, can be mocked, can be ridiculed, Jesus dying on a cross for us and those around him saying, if you are truly God, save yourself. But he said, no, I'm willing to give everything for a relationship with them, with you. That I don't care if people think that I'm weak. I don't care if they think I'm defenseless. This is what I have to do, and I'm willing to do that because they were created in my image and they were created for a relationship with me that can utterly transform their lives and restore things to the way that they were created to be. That is the hope that we have this morning, is responding to that grace. See, as we take communion this morning, it's a response. It's not just elements. It's not just a wafer and juice. It's our response to God saying, I understand and recognize your sacrifice. And I want to commit my life to you the way that you committed your life to me. You gave everything on my behalf. And I want to turn and say, God, I could not have been at peace without you. I could not have peace without God, without Jesus' sacrifice. And I want to accept that and I want to respond to that. As the communion team prepares, they can go ahead and come forward. Um, We're going to get the opportunity to celebrate Jesus' life, his death. The fact that these, this wafer and this juice are here, as I said, are not just elements, but they resemble and reflect the person of Jesus Christ, his body, the fact that he's a real person, that it's somebody we can have communion with, that it's somebody we can interact with, somebody that can change our life, much like a spouse does in a positive way changes our life. Somebody we can know, somebody that we can pursue, and indeed somebody that's already pursued us, somebody that wants to have a relationship with us. If you're here this morning, you haven't responded to Jesus. If you're just checking out church or you like the principles or you think this whole thing is kind of interesting, you think it can be of good moral benefit or you like how it affects society, but don't know Jesus. I invite you to do that this morning because Jesus is kind of why we're here. Like, he's the whole reason. He's the whole purpose. It's not the fact that we just like the rules or the the things that surround Christianity. We don't like just the tradition. Because if Jesus weren't part of it, none of this would exist. If you haven't made it personal this morning, I want to invite you. I want to introduce you to Jesus. We have a prayer team along the wall, and I'll be over there. I'd love to talk to you and introduce you to him. If you've been in church a while and you feel like, okay, I've accepted Jesus at one point. I have a relationship with him. I want to ask you a personal question. How is your relationship? Just like a marriage, just like friendships, they become, can become stale. They can become stagnant. Relationships require work. They require effort. But the beauty of it is, is once you get a taste of that relationship, once you get a taste of the freedom, you cannot get enough. And that's been the experience of my life is that as I get to know Jesus, as I get to see him, I want more of him. This morning, I want to challenge you to want more of him. As you take communion, remember that this is about a person. It's not about a tradition or an act or elements. It's about a person. It's somebody living and active that wants to have an 
intimate relationship with you, who wants to let you into his life and you let him into yours. Be praying this morning that the Holy Spirit would transform your life. We all need a little bit of reviving this morning. As you take the elements, pray that the Holy Spirit would liven you up, turn within you to transform you, that you might experience him in a personal way. I'm going to pray and then I'll let you guys take communion. Father, you as a person are just amazing. God, you have the ability to transform who we are. You have the ability to extend from heaven down to where we are. Lord, you've done that over and over again through history. You've reached out to us. You've reached out to creation. You said you cannot be fulfilled. You cannot find purpose. You cannot find hope. You cannot have that reward. You cannot experience freedom unless you experience me. God, we want to experience you this morning. We want to know you. We want to know you in your power and your glory. Lord, you make everything glorious. Lord, when we get to see you in your word, when we get to see you interact in our lives, Lord, it changes who we are and it makes us want more. And I pray that that's the case this morning, that, Lord, for those that maybe haven't felt you in a while, that they would feel you, that they would see you, that they would experience you this morning. Pray that as we take communion, Lord, we would respond to your grace, that we would find you in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.